0: 19. Today we are looking at the 12th stanza, which is verses 89 through 96. Uh, Actually, that means that we're halfway through the, the, the psalm. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so we've covered 11, and now we're beginning the second part of that, so we're in the 12th stanza today. The psalmist is living in the midst of a culture that is hostile to his faith, and I don't think it's a stretch. At all to say that Bible-believing Christians are really in a similar situation in our nation. So the things the psalmist addresses in these stanzas really can be very helpful to us. He models a number of things for us. He models for us the the, the need to take those challenges of our culture and those that are especially personal and and, and connect with us to the Lord in prayer. He prays about the challenge of purity. He asks the Lord to deal bountifully with him so that he will be able to faithfully keep his word in his life. He prays about civil authorities who were governing in opposition to his faith. He also grieves about great sins he sees in the culture as well as great sins he sees in his own life. There's obviously a major focus on the word of God itself in Psalm 119. In almost every verse, the psalmist has something to say about the commands, the testimonies, the statutes, the precepts, the ordinances, the laws of God. He regularly commits himself to keeping God's commandments. He asked the Lord to grant him greater insight into his word. He asked the Lord for help so that he can actually be consistent in walking out those precepts. In the previous three stanzas to the one we're looking at today, the psalmist has gotten more specific about the trials that he was dealing with. Wicked, arrogant men have forged a lie against him. Literally, it's the idea they were smearing him with lies. But he's committed to going through these painful trials in such a way that he can be an example to others. He prayed about that. And then in this preceding stanza, verses 81 to 88, we see a lament. It's a lament because he's just feeling overwhelmed. He is just exhausted with all he has had to endure. The arrogant men have persecuted him with these lies. They have put forth great effort to harm him. But in the midst of these very difficult sufferings, the psalmist is committed to staying true to the Lord through it all. And those last three stanzas, he's made it clear that he knows God has dealt well with him. He knows God is good, and he knows that all that God does is good, including what he's dealing with. He has delight in God's law. In fact, God's law, he says, is better than to him than great riches. He's trusting the Lord's loving kindness to comfort him. He knows it's the Lord himself who is actually bringing these afflictions into his life, and he commits to meditating on those statutes, the statutes of the Lord. Even in his most desperate lament, he still says to the Lord, all your commandments are faithful. I did not forsake your precepts. So in these last three stanzas, the psalmist has been quite clear about how truly difficult his trials have been. His life has literally been in danger multiple times. But in the midst of those afflictions, he continues to hold fast to the Lord. And in the stance that we're considering today, it's almost as if now he's kind of gotten on top of that. He's he has sure footedness, and he knows with God's help he is standing firm even when things are so topsy turvy and difficult around him. So let's look at Psalm 119, 89 to 96. He says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth, and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. We're going to consider these verses in two sections. First, verses 89 to 91, focused on the faithfulness of God and the sure foundation of his word. And then in verses 92 to 96, the psalmist gives a number of applications in his life of how the all sufficient word has helped him. So, our first main point is this: In times of great upheaval and discouragement, believers can stand firm in the faith that God's unchanging faithfulness assures that his word provides a solid sure foundation. And as we noted in the previous stanzas, the psalmist has given quite a bit of attention to the great moral upheaval Going on around him, he was a committed believer living in a culture that was thoroughly dominated by idolatry. In this stanza, he does refer to his affliction in verse ninety-two and ninety-five, but otherwise, his focus is really on the foundation that he has in the Lord. And it's almost like I said, he's like he's standing on this firm rock and seeing how, how that he has a firmness in spite of what's going on around him. Now, the first thing he says about that makes it clear that believers can be confident that no matter how things are in the culture, God's word continues to have a heaven-like stability. God's word has a heaven-like stability. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. This is really quite a statement. I mean, things in the world often seem quite unsettled, to say the least. I mean, man's teachings have a tendency to change quite a bit from generation to generation. But that's not true when it comes to the Lord and the stability of his word. His word is forever settled. It's right. It is true. It has the wisdom of God behind it. It has the authority of God behind it. It's the sufficient, certain, and infallible word. And when he says the word of God is settled in heaven... He seems to be making a comparison, a contrast to the unsettledness of the words of man and the upheaval that is often seen in the earth. I mean, when you think about it, laws, even boundaries, belief systems, philosophies, political ideologies, even down, unfortunately, to in our day to the definition of what is male and female, seems to be constantly in flux in the earth. For example... We read in the book of Daniel about the fact that the law of the Medes and Persians could not be changed. And that comes up because king Darius, who was the king at that time, had agreed to a ruling. And he did not realize that ruling was going to end up resulting in Daniel being thrown to the lion's den. He had a soft spot in his heart for Daniel. He, he liked Daniel. But he knew because the law of the Medes and Persians could not be changed, that that law could not be changed. Is that still true about the laws of the Medes and Persians? Where are the Medes and the Persians? What has happened in that particular area that was Medes and Persians, how many changes has there been in that geographical area, in the government governmental systems, the laws since the time of Daniel. I mean, it's just been over and over. Laws and the and Persians can't be changed. Oh, yeah. They don't even exist anymore. So, so the idea that things, that, our, that the worth, world is changeable and that people don't always, people's ideas, people's even promises don't always stay the same. We've probably got examples in our own life. Of that, i sure to think how many promises I've made that I have not followed through on. One, I was made aware of very much last week (laughs) when my granddaughter, Eliana, made a bracelet for me for my birthday, and I promised I was going to wear it to church last Sunday, and I completely forgot. I just felt terrible. I actually did penance when I got home. I put it on when I got home, and Wore it for a while, and hopefully she's forgiven me, and I've got it on today. But I mean, the point is is that is that the plans of man, the beliefs of man, the promises, the priorities that people have, are seem like they're always in flux, are changing, are not something you can actually build on. And we live in an in an in a, in idolatrous culture, but the fact that the Lord's word is permanently established, we can be confident because of his word and because of his faithfulness. By the way, when we think here also about about His forever his word is settled, yes, that includes the scriptures, but that also would speak of God's decrees. God has ordained all things whatsoever come to pass. And as the psalmist noted back in verse 75, that includes the afflictions that he sends our way. Well, that too should give us comfort. It really should. Well, now to build on this truth, next, the psalmist points out that God's word can be trusted because he's faithful and has proven that from generation to generation. He says in verse 90, your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. So God's word can be trusted because he can be fully trusted. So think about the generation to generation coming. Let me just give you a few examples. Uh, There is a promise that Jesus Christ gave in in conjunction with giving the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, the book of Matthew. He says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That promise was spoken 2,000 years ago, and it's still true. It's still true. The promise from Psalm 23, which we sang earlier, the promise, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want." That was written about 3,000 years ago. And it's still true. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses 3,500 years ago, and they are still the definition of what is right and wrong. Over 4,000 years ago, the Lord reckoned Abraham to be righteous before God because of his faith in the Messiah to come. Well, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you too have been reckoned to be righteous in him. That hasn't changed. Four thousand years ago. He is faithful from generation to generation. His word is settled, and his faithfulness continues throughout all generation. Then the psalmist gives one more example of the unchanging faithfulness of God. Look at the last part of verse 90 and into verse 91. He says, You established the earth, and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. So we see in these verses, the next point, that believers can be encouraged that though, the, that though the world continues in rebellion to its creator, he continues to keep the natural world functioning as he created it to do. God created the earth, he established the earth, and it stands. Job 26, verse 7, makes a very, it's an obvious thing to us, but it's also remarkable. It says, he hangs the earth on nothing. He hangs the earth on nothing. What is, I mean, the earth is hanging on nothing. Nothing is holding us up. God is holding us up. But it's amazing when you think about it, we've seen pictures, and those of you who look in telescopes can kind of see some of these things, images of, of the Earth and the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, and to see how permanent they are. They just stay there. We know what the orbit of each planet is. Astronomers chart the stars and know exactly where they are, and they just stay there. Hanging on nothing, just like the earth. We know from experience that the orbit and the rotation of the earth is so precise, we always know we're going to have a 24 hour day. We always know that. We always know that every year is going to have 365 and a fourth days. Those things are firm. We know the seasons. This is April. We all know what to expect in April. There's going to be rain. There's going to be grass getting green. Most of us have had to mow our yard already. Flowers begin to bloom. Dandelions begin to take over. I mean, it's spring. That's what happens in the spring. And it's because God has established the earth and it stands according to his ordinances of what will take place in the earth. I don't know if you ever think of stupid things like this, but I've, got this, I've had, had this idea. I thought, I mean, just, just, just this image of the earth just kind of hanging there on nothing. What if we got everybody, if we were able to somehow get everybody in the western hemisphere, every person in the western hemisphere, we would all jump at the same time. <laughs> Do you think that would throw off the earth? Do you think the orbit would be changed in some way? No. It would just be—I mean—be amazing if you could make, do that kind of organization, but you're going to accomplish nothing, as far as the earth is concerned. It's there because the, because the Lord has established the earth; therefore, it stands, and that's not going to change. Now, to further illustrate what the psalmist has to say, he says, "All things are God's servants." The plants. The rain clouds, the insects, the animals, they're all God's servants. Going back to the book of Job, Elihu spoke of this with quite a bit of clarity in Job 37. He spoke of the thunder and the clouds, and he spoke of ice and lightning and the sky. And then in chapters 38 and 39, God himself begins to speak, and he, uh, he proposes all these questions to Job to show that, Job thinks he understands a lot, but he doesn't understand very much at all. And so he challenges him with all these things. And what he brings up is he says, were you there when the Lord laid the, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Were you there? Remember how that happened? What about the sea? What do you understand about the sea? What about that we have, we have a morning every day? How does that happen? He talks to him about light and darkness. He talks to him about snow and hail. He talks to him about rain and deserts. He talks about dew and frost. He talks about the constellation of stars in the sky, in the heavens. He talks about lions, mountain goats, donkeys, the wild ox, ostriches, horses, hawks, eagles, and more. God established and oversees all of these things. They are all his servants, and they do exactly as he tells them. Next time you take a walk, remember that. As you see the birds flying, as you see the squirrels scampering by, you see owners trying to keep their dogs under control. All things are His servants. What's the point of this? Well, it should give us a sense of all. Even these everyday kind of things should give us a sense of all. But it's also an everyday reminder that our God is faithful and His word is trustworthy. That's the context of this. His word is trustworthy. If the earth would cease to rotate on its axis, then you would would have some reason not to trust God, but that's not going to happen. So no matter what's going on in our lives or in the culture around us, we can stand firm because our God is unchanging and his word is, is, is established in the heavens. We have that firm foundation. When our second main point, we're looking at verses 92 to 96. Let me read those for you again. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. <coughs> I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. <coughs> I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. So our second main point is this from these verses. Since God's word is perfectly true and stable, it provides help that is sufficient for his servants. So in these verses, the psalmist is making some applications in his life based on the firm foundation he has in God's word. And these applications, I think, especially speak of the sufficiency of God's word. Sufficiency is one of my favorite characteristics of the scripture to think about. No Webster defines sufficiency like this. It's the state of being adequate to the end proposed. The state of being adequate to the end proposed. According to 2 Timothy 3, 17, the end proposed for the scripture is that every believer would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So whatever your circumstances in life are, the scriptures are sufficient in God's hands to equip you to please the Lord in the circumstances that you're in, whatever they might be. First thing we'll notice is this the word of God is sufficient to enable his servants to endure, to endure affliction with joy. Endure affliction with joy. The hard trials that the psalmist had to had endured, they were always before him. He can't pretend they don't exist. Because they do, they're painful. He's greatly bothered by them. I'm sure it would be easy to fixate on them in a very unhealthy kind of way. But the psalmist doesn't just put them out of mind, but what he does, he addresses them before the Lord. He's constantly bringing his circumstances to the Lord in prayer. He's expressing frustration, but he's also demonstrating his faith in the Lord and in his Word. Verse 92 says, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. So his afflictions are so hard, so dangerous that he knew his life was being threatened. He knows in his own strength he could sink down. He could be overwhelmed with fear. He could be overwhelmed with unbelief. But the Lord would not allow that to happen. And the reason he says he didn't perish is because the Lord caused his word to be a delight, a delight, a to the psalmist. So as the psalmist would read the scriptures, think about the scriptures that he knew, he would be encouraged. He'd be reminded of a number of things. He'd be reminded that God's law is right, is clear about what right and wrong is, regardless of what the culture around him is in. He knows he has a he has a clear standard of what is right and wrong in the scriptures. He knows that. He's reminded that honoring the Lord is more important than fitting in with the culture. He's reminded of that. He has meditated on the scriptures, and you can see by this stanza, one of the things he's meditated on is God's faithfulness and the faithfulness of his word. And so because of that, he's able to have this heaven-like stability of the word to see him through his affliction. It really encouraged him. And as he considered the wonder of the Lord in his word, he was given a true joy, a joy that was there in spite of really hard afflictions. A couple guys that I read, Charles Bridges, he said, each promise of the word of God is in a sense kind of like a staff for the psalmist to lean on. And the more promises he's reminded of, the more staffs he's got to hold him and keep him firm. Um, William Gurnall talked about each promise being like an ear of corn you might enjoy. It's one thing to have one ear of corn. It's another thing to be delighted in a whole field. The scripture is a whole field of God's sufficient word. And when you think of it that way, you can understand why there is delight, why there is joy, even though there are problems around. So the word of God is sufficient to enable us to endure affliction in our life with a firm joy. Next, we see that God uses his sufficient word to quicken his servants in their time of difficulty. We'll put 93 and 94 together on this. He says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. So the psalmist starts off by making really an admirable resolution. I will not forget your precepts. Whether he was able to follow through with that, I don't know, but I will not forget. He had said earlier, verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So when you realize something is that valuable, I mean, if you have that kind of treasure, you don't forget where you put it. And so that helped him to remember. I'm really thankful for the things over the years that I've learned about the word of God that have where I've gotten to know God better, I've understood more about salvation. Understood more about how to apply His Word in different areas of my life. But I also have to admit, there are many things I've learned over the years that I've forgotten. I remember a friend of mine. He said, "He said I used to pray all the time. Lord, don't help help me not to forget the things I've learned." But I've forgotten. One of the things that's helped me, I write. I, I make notes in my Bible fairly often. And I'm grateful for those notes because they help me remember. One of the discouraging things, I'll look at those notes and say, I have no idea. I can not remember even writing that. I don't even remember what the context of that was. Why did I write that down? I mean, there's things you forget. Thankfully, notes help to bring it back to mind. But another thing that helps us remember is really what the psalmist mentions in verse 93. God had used some precepts of his word to revive the psalmist in a time of need and you can be sure he's not going to forget those Charles Spurgeon makes this observation his quotes on your outline he says when we have felt the quickening power of a precept we cannot forget it when we felt the quickening power of a precept we cannot forget it you probably have some of those I'm sure you do in your own life scriptures that have been especially meaningful or helpful to you at various times. I remember a class I was in with other, at that time we were all young men, back in the 1980s. We were reading through Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons on the book of Romans. Those sermons and the discussions that we had about the verses that those sermons were addressing helped me so much to understand what the book of Romans was about, and the doctrines, especially the, the gospel doctrines that are there. As a result, I remember those verses. I remember those. That was, those were crucial in my life. I remember reading scriptures about marriage in the late 70s. I could probably pinpoint the exact date, maybe 1978, if I think about it. And God used those scriptures I was reading, that study I was doing, to confirm to me without a doubt that I should ask Mary, Robin to marry me. God was right on that. <laughs> and thankfully, she understood that too. So, But I remember those verses. You remember verses that you've been working through, and God has used them in your life in a certain way. You remember them. You just do. Praise God. That's one of the ways to remember In verse 94, the psalmist further elaborates then on the way the Lord had used his precepts in special times in his life. He describes himself as one who had sought after God's precepts. They were so vital in his life that he gave much attention to reading, studying, understanding, trying to apply these truths from the scriptures to his life. Well, what was it that drove him to give great time and energy to knowing the scriptures? He says, is because he knew he belonged to the Lord. I'm yours, he says. So he knew that he belonged, body and soul, in life and in death, to his Savior. He knew that. The Lord was his creator, but he was also his Savior. So when we belong to the Lord, we are his portion, like he said back in verse 57. We are his workmanship. We have been purchased by the blood of the Messiah, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because those things are true, we seek after and value highly his precepts, the precepts of our creator and savior. We belong to him, so we trust him for salvation. We regularly need to be saved from things when you think about it. There's an overarching idea of salvation But we regularly need to be saved from things like our personal sin that we deal with, self-centeredness, guilt, attacks of Satan. There's also the ongoing recognition of people who are enemies of the one true God that, that he acknowledges a number of times. And this request here for God to save him is closely connected with God reviving him in verse 93. We're always aware of it. We are always, say it this way, we are always in need. There's always times that we have need. Sometimes we're more aware of it than others, but we always have need. So the prayer, I am yours, save me or deliver me, is a needed prayer. So God uses his sufficient word to quicken his servants in our time of difficulty. Verse 95, we see part of what inspired the prayer for God to save him. It says this, The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. So here we see another example of the sufficiency of God's word to help his servants. We see that the word of God gives his servants confidence that they truly belong to him and he will surely keep them in spite of those who seek to do them harm. So the psalmist once again talks about a major part of the affliction that he was enduring. It was wicked people who were waiting, seeking, working actively to bring about his destruction. The instruments of Satan never stop. We are all born in sin. We have to recognize that. We're all, not by nature, enemies of God. And it's only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, of course, that anyone is saved. And, of course, it costs... The the way that happened, of course, as you know, is God the Father sent God the Son to accomplish salvation for sinners. The Son lived a perfectly holy life in line with the commandments, the precepts, the ordinances, the law of God. He was crucified on the cross as a perfectly holy substitute for sinners. He was raised from the dead in confirmation that he had fully accomplished salvation for all who would believe. And then God the Spirit takes what God the Son accomplished and applies that salvation to our heart. And as believers then, we're going to be rejoicing in our Savior really for eternity because of what he's done for us. But there are many who persist in their enmity to God. Some actively stand against the Lord and stand against those who serve him. Some go so far as to seek to try to destroy those who belong to the Lord, and we know persecution of believers is rampant in the world. Persecution is real in Saudi Arabia, as we saw earlier this morning. I was praying for that country this this week. Actually, about once a month, we pray for a nation where, well, using the words of this psalm, where the wicked are waiting to destroy those who believe in Jesus Christ. It's where persecution is very real and rampant. This week, for example, we're praying for the persecuted church in Sudan. They're all over; it's, that's, those kind of things are happening all over the world, unfortunately. And there are many who suffer terribly because of their faith. And the psalmist was one of them. He knew very well that people were actively seeking to destroy him, to take away his life. So, what was his response? He goes to the sufficient Word of God. He uses the persecution as a prod to diligently consider and seek the testimonies of the Lord. When you diligently consider something, that means you're, you're studying it. You're thinking carefully about it. You're trying to understand as well you can. And as he studied, that was going to give encouragement. That was going to give hope in the Lord. I don't know what scriptures he especially focused on. Let me give you a couple that I think would especially help him in his time of need, would help us too. Psalm 12, verse 7, it speaks of the pure words of God in the kind of similar way that he is here. But it also says, you, O Lord, will keep them, speaking of your words. You will preserve him, talking about the person who believed those words, you will preserve him from this generation forever, even though the wicked strut about on every side. That would be a verse that I think would be helpful to the psalmist, what he was going through. Another one, Isaiah 26, verse 3. It says, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you and God the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. It's the testimonies of God that give his servants the confidence we need to know that we truly belong to him and that he's going to keep us no matter what other people are trying to do to harm us. So the word of God is sufficient for those times in our life. Finally, look at verse 96. He says, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. So this tells us finally that by diligently considering the Lord's testimonies, believers see both the vanity of the world and the broad application of his commandments to all of life. Verse 95, as we saw earlier, he said he was diligently considering the testimonies of the Lord. But one of the things the Lord revealed to him in his study is what he says here in verse 96. He has been given a deeper insight into the lack of perfection in the world. He could see more clearly the pollution that sin had caused in the world. I mean, human perfection is a dead end. It's not going to work. No one can be good enough for God. Actually, it's described this way in Ecclesiastes. I think this is verse 2 of, the, of the chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You get the impression he's talking about vanity. But he's talking about the world, and he said that's what the world consists of. All this stuff that seems to be so solid and so firm, it's vanity. It's not permanent. It doesn't last for the long run. But that's not all the psalmist has seen. He's also seen the commandments of God are exceedingly broad as he describes it here. What he's talking about there I believe is this. The law of God touches every area of life. There are no exceptions. Every area of life it deals, it addresses every thought that you and I have ever had or ever will have. It addresses every word we have spoken or will speak. It, the word of God touches every action, every motive that we have. And when we see that, first we're under no illusion of any claim of perfection on our part, and. Really, what we're going to say is what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, woe is me, I'm undone. If, he, if, if all that stuff is exposed, I'm in a bad way. Woe is me, I'm undone. But also, that fact of God's word is crucial in leading us to see our need for a Savior. Not just that we're undone, but that means our hope is a, we must have a Savior and pointing us toward Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. So once we have Christ as our Savior and as our Lord, we are focused then on how to live our life with Jesus as our Lord. And the fact that his commandment is exceedingly broad means that his word has something to say about every aspect of your life. Everything. The word of God gives you the precepts you need to make wise decisions. It's not going to have a write-up about every particular decision you are having to decide about, but it's going to give you precepts to make you make, help you make a wise decision. The Word of God gives instructions on what your relationships with other people should be like and what they shouldn't be like. The Word of God reveals who God is so that your worship is more complete, more right, In fact, the Word of God tells us how we should worship. It tells us how God wants to be worshipped. The Word of God helps us to think through our priorities. The Word of God helps us to evaluate accurately the claims that the culture around us makes. And the Word of God defines what is right and also what is true. There is not a single aspect of your life or mine that the word of God does not have something to say about. But it takes some digging (laughs) to make sure you understand that. And oftentimes we need other people to help us do some of that digging, but it's there. The scriptures, the commandment is exceedingly broad. There is no situation you're going to come into and you're thinking, well, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about this, I'm sure. You will not find any situation like that. It doesn't exist because the word of God is exceedingly broad. But again, it reminds us we need to seriously study and consider to make those applications. So we've seen the word of God is forever settled, and it gives us us the stability that we desperately need in a world that is in constant rebellion against him. No matter what your situation in life is, the scriptures are sufficient for you Again, because his commandment is exceedingly broad. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word. I thank you again for an example we have in the psalmist here who just just continues just to extol your word and just kind of makes it clear how valuable he understood your word to be and how much time he gave to trying to understand it and apply it and live it out. I mean, I just want to thank you for his example. Help us to learn from his example. Help us to learn that even though there, are, there is so many things around us that can make us feel like maybe we're going under, maybe everything's getting ready to go under, but that you are, are faithful from generation to generation. You are always faithful, and your word is forever settled in heaven. It has a heavenly stability about it. Remind us of that. It's easy to forget when we watch the news remind us of the stability we have in you and in your word. And Lord, I ask for each of us here. We're all in different places, uh, different ages, uh, different circumstances in life, all kinds of different things, different job, different family relationships, all kinds of things vary for each one of us here. But your word is sufficient for all of us. So Lord, I ask that you would help us to see how your word applies in our particular circumstances and give us the faith to trust you in the middle of it. Lord, we need your help. We need you to deliver us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. We all need a savior. Every single one of us need a savior. The world doesn't have anything to offer in that, but our Lord does. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, here is a way, a prayer to start. Lord, I realize I am a sinner. Since your word is exceedingly broad, and even if it shows just even the thoughts I've had in the last week, I'm in trouble. I know that. But Lord, I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off from the bulletin, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.